Ever since humans transitioned from an animal hunting society into agriculture and husbandry, epidemics and pandemics have been close companions in our development right until this day and age. Countless deaths and morbidities used to occur as pandemics ravaged several countries and regions around the globe, partly because there was less knowledge about the causes of these diseases, how they spread, and how to treat them. March 11th, 2021 marks a grim milestone being exactly one year since COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. And in this episode, we will explore the parallels between the current pandemic and previous ones. Let's take a look at the history of pandemics. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Sully, and I'm joined by Gordon, LaShawn, Ben, Linda, and Will. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. So to start, let's define a couple terminologies that will assist us throughout the episode. Epidemics, pandemics, endemics, and zoonosis. So what's an epidemic? An epidemic is a disease that affects a large amount of people, usually within a population or region. Yeah, and that contrasts with a pandemic as in uh, it's an epidemic that's that spreads over multiple countries and continents, usually through trade, conflict, and it's uh, usually like an accelerated process while spreading. So another term that uh, everyone should be familiar with is endemic, which refers to something that belongs in a particular region or country. For example, endemics are constant presence in a specific location, such as malaria being endemic in specific areas of Africa. So even if we wanted to zoom, go from like small picture to big picture, we'd start with an endemic and then it would spread to an epidemic and then eventually a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And a big misconception with pandemics is you, you think that it has to affect millions and millions of people, uh, but that's kind of an incorrect perception. Uh, the key things with pandemics, it has to be a novel disease. Um, there has to be... Um, transmission in different regions, different geographical regions, and then have sustained transmission in the communities of those regions. So you can technically have a pandemic that affects like 20,000 people, even though people are used to it being, you know, 5 million, 10 million upwards, like what we know in history and COVID-19. Right. I think the key factor is region and that defines what we call it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that brings me to the question, how do pandemics occur in the first place? Mm. Um, I think one of the ways is, as we've seen throughout history and in contemporary times, is that um, diseases or infections that are typically naturally occurring in, uh, I guess, in the wild, in animals, will jump over cross species to humans um, and become what are called um, zoonoses. And so... I guess that brings the question when we're talking about the spreading of diseases, um, epidemics, pandemics, why are animals even considered in the first place? Um, And I think that leads to a lot of factors such as um, whether we we have animals for companionship, whether we use them for food um, or different resources um, and materials such as clothing. Um, We've developed this relationship with animals throughout history. Um, to use for our benefit as humans. Yeah, and adding on to that, as we've been going more into urbanization, we've also been involving ourselves in interfering with a lot of the environments that animals are native to. 
And when we do that, we obviously create more close contact interaction potentials between us and animals. And at the same time, we also interrupt the viral sphere that exists within these environments. And even more indirectly, right? So through climate change, uh, for those vector-borne diseases um, like malaria, um, you know, if as the climate begins to change, it might expand the the habitable range of those um, mosquitoes that carry those diseases, and then you can have disease transmission uh, to regions that were previously off the table. So that's another important point as well. And even things like conflicts can influence migration patterns. We can see a huge influx of people moving from one area to another. And then with conflict, things like sanitation and hygiene become very difficult. And we've seen throughout history, like those are prime conditions for viruses. And even something like, you know, just income disparities or wealth gaps, right? If you, if you see, um, across the world or even just um, kind of across time it's typically you know those individuals who live in states of poverty or you know um, slums cramped housing things like that are typically more at risk um, to a lot of these pandemics and it's something that we we've seen with covid is that um, the lower and I guess lower income countries as well as lower income individuals are disproportionately affected and I think um, it's something that's that's followed us through throughout history absolutely mm-hmm. like even preparing for this episode i was shook to see over 2000 years literally all of just from what we have recordings of mm-hmm. every plague it's been like living conditions that lead to who's most affected and it's you know lower income Mm -hmm. the poor who have disproportionate impacts and i'm like have we learned anything why are we still experiencing this same exact thing in 2021 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's surprising how it usually happens because like uh, talking about slums and uh, poor uh, neighborhoods and uh, where people congregate and stuff like that Uh, so let's uh, I'll I'll put the scenario out out there say there's like a a city that has a port it's a a trading port where trade usually happens merchants come in from different places around the world and uh, guess where the slums are located guess guess where the poor neighborhoods are located they're at the front line of where Mm -hmm. the trade happens they're the first contact and uh, usually, if we're looking at a at a port city, um, you have the the so the poor uh, neighborhoods would be at the lower parts of the city. Like uh, we're talking in terms of al- altitude here, so like the rich would be living, uh, you know, at high altitudes, and uh, mm. the poor would be living at sea level. Um, so they'll be the first uh, to contact the the virus or the bacteria. Yeah. It's ancient urban point. planning spread, spread out from there Will, where you at it's like, th- um, like if we like look back before sewage how did people get rid of wastewater you like dump it in the streets oh. and if if mm. you're elevated at different altitude altitudes if let's say a rain rainfall all the gunk all the scum gets swashed down and who's mm-hmm. at the very bottom? Like Sully said, it's the the mm-hmm. impoverished. Um, you often don't know what's happening in London until recently, right? Mm-hmm. Like a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's quite a shame. And wasn't yeah. that even with the well, when we get to it, but with the um, cholera pandemic too, it was like mm-hmm. whoever's downstream, where all of the sewage and stuff 
goes, those are the people who are most impacted. Yeah. And uh, I, I have a I have another question following uh, following the how pandemics occur. Uh, what determines their behavior? Um, like how they spread and how they affect people. So, like each virus um, has different characteristics, and they spread or transmit at different rates. So we use terms like R naught, which refers to how many people will get infected from one person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And just to give an example for that, the one that's commonly used is when you talk about the R naught value for measles, which basically has a really high one of 16, which means that one person has the ability to infect up to 16 people, which mm-hmm. is devastating and Mm. exactly whereas even with measles um, it may have a different severity of after you become infected and lethality towards that um, compared to something like COVID-19 for example jumping on what was Sean said about measles so that 16 R naught value is is like how how like firm is that like let's say um someone who's infected um you know it's they've transmitted it to like 15 people and then they they're about to transmit it to the 16th person. Is it like after it's done, do the, does their body just not have the capacity to transmit it any further? Or is it just kind of like a rough ballpark? I, I'm just really curious. No, no, that's a great question. And to my understanding, epidemiologists basically calculate the r naught value from obtaining data from their different studies and contact tracing. And based on these numbers, um, they're able to determine and decipher on average how much um, a specific disease can transmit to other people. Okay. So I don't think right. it's a like, hard and fast rule. Like every yeah. single person, you mm. know, it has to be 16 and then the virus just kind of stops working in your body. Mm. I think it's, yeah, like LaShawn was saying, the average. But that's that's part of it too, right? Just based on human behavior and how long the incubation period is too. Like th- that is that does play a role in. Um, so there is a element of truth in your question. Well, like you're not going to be sick forever. So mm. within the life course of the disease, you're likely to... Um, infect 16 other people but also keep in mind r naught is not only a function of the virus it's a function of human behavior too so um, I always thought r naught was a fixed number until the COVID-19 pan- pandemic where we're hearing scientists talk about let's drive the r naught down what they're really saying is by using um, non-pharmaceutical interventions we can break the transmission of, of you know different pathogens such as viruses and bacteria especially the ones that we're talking about um, in the case of COVID-19 being spread through respiratory droplets or, or airborne and other, you know, viruses are transmitted that way. And the R0 value can come down because if, if you're, if you're only interacting with, so measles, um, if you're only interacting with four people throughout the course of your disease, your R0 cannot be more than four. Um, so that's why they limit your cl- close contacts and stuff like that. Um, but the problematic thing with R0 too is not that it's just, 1 to 16 is then those 16 individually are going to get 16 more um, mm. sick if nothing is done and then you get exponential spread that's why you get that curve shooting up like that so, so. assuming no interventions eh? assuming no interventions for the most part okay okay right. and like it's always a balancing act between r not and the virulence of the virus or the bacteria and that's very key in our discussion later on i just had a, a point that gordon brought up and it's regarding human behavior and how these terms affect human behavior and it's important i think to note that you know when you have a virus such as ebola and you know it's a very fatal disease but it may not be as infectious right 
So when people have the perception of Ebola, they were like, oh, this is serious, it can kill people. And then we have the actual numbers and it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's not that infectious. You have to be in very specific situations for you to grab it. How does that affect the, the R naught in that case? You know, how does that affect how we approach our public health measures to contain an outbreak of that? So there's a lot of nuance to it as well. Mm. You know, yeah, thinking about it, it's like if Ebola was not controlled the way it was, would it have become a pandemic? Yeah, they think so. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. a bubonic yeah. plague type of situation. Yeah. Hmm. I, I don't, I don't know what the scale of it would would be. Um, but mm. again, pandemics is not necessarily how many people die. It's just that every region would have have reportedly have cases of Ebola with case counts increasing daily. So that yeah. probably would happen, especially with the few scientists that did come over to mm. the states. I think who did um, develop symptoms after, and thankfully they didn't interact with many people. Um, so it it could have been much worse, but it's a different um, stuff like influenza, uh, coronaviruses, and then comparing that to Ebola. Very, very, very different diseases in terms of transmission, mm-hmm. um, and that mm-hmm. inf- influences how likely something is to become an epidemic or a pandemic. No, that that's su- that's super interesting because that just made me think about, you know, back in ancient times, for example, when you had these diseases and they're spreading and it's becoming a pandemic the time frame between that spread and to call it a pandemic is probably different than what it looked like for COVID-19 and today. Whereas now we have, you know, flights that we can have people going from country to country in a couple of hours. Um, back in the day, it was probably more slower. Mm-hmm. And so um, I wonder what consequences that had. Yeah, especially since the way information is shared, like let's say, you know, you and I were those old plague doctors back in the day. And I was in one region and I diagnosed this as this type of disease. And then you diagnose it as something else. How do we talk to each other and be like, no, actually, you know, what we're both seeing is two parts to a bigger picture here. Like, I'm really curious how that worked back in the day. Mm -hmm. And it becomes more complicated because you have the overlay of different beliefs, um, religions Mm. that you may attribute certain causes to um, and different responses that they would have as a result of some disease coming into their population or community. And we still see that today, right? Different countries handle that information differently regarding the pandemic, and it's like nothing's changed. (laughs) Yep, and the previous pandemics are case studies for that. Like a lot of the stuff we're talking about, we can pull examples from previous pandemics of um, those barriers to sharing information and all those different things. Mm -hmm. Another point I want to raise is for a lot of these ancient pandemics that are classified as pandemics, can you really call them pandemics? Because if it's only affecting, let's say, you know, the early Roman Empire or like what they considered to be like the, the known world when they haven't even discovered, you know, the Americas mm. or like parts of, of, you know, Pacific Islands, or like Southeast Asia, things like that, then can it, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't, I, I question um, the classification of calling it a pandemic. If, if I guess if we go back to our earlier dis- um, def- definition of pandemic being a global it's an interesting point and like actually most likely the these pandemics were actually happening elsewhere as well but they don't focus on other regions around the world lack of documentation stuff like that but but it's a good it's a i think as present as a as a you know based on our current working definition um i'm sure there could be some reclassification of some of these into more of an epidemic type of classification but um yeah 
Mm-hmm. But there was considerable spread. I mean, there's, you know, throughout, like, even if it started in Europe, it would reach, like, Northern Africa or parts of Asia. So even if it's mostly still the Eastern world and it doesn't come to, like, the Western New World, it still had considerable spread. So I, I think the pandemic definition still holds. Mm. That's that's a question for the historians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the disease modeler people that love looking back at these... Because yeah, we're, we're looking back and call it the right. Means, right? Osteoarchaeologists. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you got it in, Ben. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> you have just heard part one of our conversation, where we provided working definitions of pandemics, epidemics, endemics, and zoonosis, while bringing to light some of the common causes and their societal impacts. You won't want to miss the next episode where we will take a deeper look at the various pandemics that have occurred in history. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.